Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Anglo-Saxons Land, Lordship and People, episode 2.2, The Old and the New. In this episode, we are going to concentrate on the period we might describe as Late Antique Britain. I mean, equally we might just push the boat out and call it the Dark Ages, but I think that is now illegal. I'd like to briefly set the scene about the end of Roman Britain, the closing of the door and the click of the light going off, or maybe a new light dawning, who knows? And then we can have a full and frank exchange of views about the basic theories of how a large part of the North Atlantic archipelago came to speak English and enjoy warm beer, open-toed sandals and reality game shows, what used to be called the Adventus Saxonum. Part of my motivation is that I get to quote one of the finest pieces of polemic known to English history by the Mad Monk. I speak not of Larry Hagman, but of the British monk Gildas. Before we get to that, though... 
and the foundation myth of the English, if you can call it that, the theory that I learned at school in my shorts. We should have a quick reprise and summary of the environment in post-Roman Britain in which this took part. The story of late antique Britain has been very much revised, and I should cover it, but very briefly, I have to say. The picture is one of a classical colonial economy in the 1st and 2nd centuries, driven by a vast army of occupation, massive imports of goods to feed the Roman war machine, and a thing of two worlds, really, military Rome, civilian local. There would have been significant differences in the way this played out between highland and lowland, so in the latter in lowland, a far greater degree of integration may have taken place, and certainly a network of roads developed. This network of roads will be the absolute backbone of getting around England way beyond the survival of the Roman surface. It's crazy. There was a recent survey which recorded that blokes think about the Roman Empire about three times a week. On average, women think about it a lot less, but I don't think it was a rigorously scientific thing, it has to be said. Anyway, it appeared not in the New Scientist, but on Tinternet. So, I can vouch for that, though, since whenever I hit a straight bit in a country road, I wonder, oh, I wonder if this is Roman. It's just like clockwork, can't stop it. So, anyway, the use of Latin may have spread through lowland zones and may have started to replace British Celtic, or at least among an increasingly educated elite. There were successful towns, but especially Londinium, which even after some decline in the 3rd and 4th centuries remains impressive and will fascinate and terrify the Anglo-Saxons, who will take quite a while to get used to the idea of urban living and crushed avocado on rye sourdough. The economy saw continuous and increasing changes in the 3rd and 4th centuries that once had also been seen as catastrophic, with the reduction in the size of the Roman army and largely alien populations of the town in the Colonia. And it does seem that without this massive inflow of goods and bullion, the British economy was smaller. But the change is now rather viewed as having compensations and being more of a development leading to a more integrated economy, a genuinely Romano-British culture, and much more manufacturing production now locally produced rather than imported although local industry remained very focused on local markets and at lower production values, everything was a bit crappier, basically. The Roman villa of the countryside was an increasingly common component, although the vernacular roundhouse remained the most common building of the people. Much government was based on local towns, administrative areas, regio or civitas. Life was hard but the yoke of Rome rested less heavily on British shoulders. By the end of the 4th century, Britain was probably quite heavily Christianised. An imperial decree banned urban temples in 341. Paganism was effectively outlawed in the 390s, and yet temple complexes survived after that, so the presence of Christianity would have been a very mixed picture depending on where you went. Into this world, though, came a period of barbarian invasion. Barbarian in the Roman sense of the word, well-adjusted ambitious business development teams with an eye to an opportunity but just with differing cultures in more acceptable modern parlance. The big ticket item was the barbarian conspiracy of 367. Obviously the conspiracy word meant what it normally does to historians of old, a chance to big up a great story and all power to that. 
since really it's unlikely there was a lot of collusion between the various business development teams. But nonetheless, a whole load of barbarians did indeed attack at the same time. Picts, Scots, Saxons. The imperial response at the start is very effective, with the building and maintenance of the Saxon shore forts. But the military presence in Britain becomes smaller and smaller as trouble at the centre intensifies, the empire is plagued on its borders, bullion leaves the empire and inflation rockets. Public money was scarce. What there was found its way into military coffers, trade was disrupted, urban centres are progressively deserted, to the extent that in many of the smaller regional centres it's basically squatting now. In 410, the last soldier leaves and turns out the light, or at least... That's what the story used to be. But the point about all of this is that the Roman departure from Britain is not a single-year event, but something that covers two or three generations. And the 5th century is very, very interesting, because this, of course, is when the invasion story is supposed to start. And there are more dramatic images and a few iconic quotes, of which this is the most famous. In 429, to Aetius, a Roman general in Gaul, regarded by Gildas from the Britons, asking for help. The barbarians push us back to the sea. The sea pushes us back to the barbarians. Between these two kind of deaths, we are either drowned or slaughtered. The thing about that, someone points out, if you take it seriously, is that yes, it sounds desperate, but look, Whoever wrote it are probably bigging it up. The author is bidding for more troops, so it's unlikely they'd have gone for, well, you know what, things are a bit awkward, and so if you've got a few spares idling around, send them over. But no worries if there's a problem. No, a bit of hyperbole was only to be expected. Plus, reading against the text, the note suggests that in 430, then, there was still some central guiding authority. The story seems to be that people try to keep calm and carry on, but that the coinage stops, investment stops, towns become deserted, society flattens as the economy capable of supporting rural villa collapses. Yes, sure, it is variable. In many localities, people keep some sort of public authority going. People remain loyal to the idea of Rome for a generation or two. So, there's a deal of confidence even in some parts. Just the other day, there was a report on the Beeb that archaeologists have found a 5th century mosaic at the Roman villa of Chedworth. Now, you don't go wasting your time building expensive mosaics if you're worried about whether you'll be slaughtered or drowned in the morning, do you? I suppose it could be a distraction activity, but I doubt it. Someone had the confidence in the future. But they were probably not reading the room right. The economic, military and political basis of the Romano-British society had gone and society is close behind it. The one that hit me most, really, was the news that much settlement flees back to the old Iron Age hilltop forts. Isn't that quite an image? Let's say you were a prosperous villa owner and farmer in the early 400s employing a range of estate workers and slaves. You are looking a little podgy and your dress toga no longer quite fits. Over time, your children who take over the estate find it impossible to get manufactured goods. Markets for your products are disappearing. You used to have large number of estate workers because the low-lying land had drainage channels which you needed to maintain. But you can't find those workers anymore or, or pay them. So the channels clog up, you stop working half your land. 
and examples have been found specifically of that in this period. Eventually, you're not much more than a squatter, really, on this old building which is falling around you, no longer part of an elite, because an elite no longer really exists in quite the same way. One day, when some settlers rudely park themselves on your land, and you can't get them to move on, you pack up whatever you carry and head up into the old hill fort where others have gathered for mutual protection, a hill fort that used to be nothing more than a reminder of old, barbarian, uncivilised days long gone. Possibly I'm getting all Victorian on you, but you know what I mean? It's very poignant. People hang on and keep things going for a while, as I say, becoming less and less Roman across the generations. There's a quote from a 6th century historian Procopius about Gaul, which probably reflects what was going on in Britain too. And it is rather heartrending again, rather poignant. Roman soldiers, stationed on the frontiers of Gaul to serve as guards, handed down to their offspring all the customs of their fathers, even today. They are clearly recognised as belonging to the legions to which they were assigned in ancient times, and they carry their own standards when they enter battle, and they preserve the dress of the Romans in every particular, even down to their shoes. OK, so that is the world we're dealing with. It is a country under enormous pressure. The collapse of the economy, life changing drastically, wealth disappearing overnight, enormous dislocation, people holding on to customs. At best, by the mid to late 5th century, a series of local strongmen and petty tyrants were running poorly resourced minor kingdoms. Which brings us kicking and screaming and crying for quarter to those traditional stories of what happened with the arrival of the Saxons. And to be fair, do you know what? It's a lot more cinematic than the current academic favourites. Now, when I were a nipper, the theory I heard was one which still owed an awful lot to Geoffrey of Monmouth, let alone Bede. I mean, it didn't, it didn't. By 1970, everyone knew full well that the history of the kings of Britain was a work of fiction, but still, it filled our world with stories of British tyrants, mysticism, Merlin, Saxon invaders, King Arthur, Hengist and Horsa. Most importantly, it is not irrelevant that this is the story that many centuries of English believed about their origin, and before that, in Anglo-Saxon England, it is significant to the values of their society that they like to view their past as one of heroic leaders followed by faithful warriors seizing and gaining territories by the force of their sword and effort. They would see their society as a result of invasion and conquest and subject to it and threatened by it. Whatever the real story was, that's the way they viewed it. We'll come back to that later. So I am told that it was Edward Gibbon, he of the decline and fall of Reginald Perrin fame, that someone began to put the origin story into some kind of defensible structure. His story goes that with the withdrawal of Roman troops and civil administration, post-Roman Britain was heavily traumatised and dislocated, beset by dangers on all sides of those Picts, Scots and Saxons. And so Saxon auxiliary units were raised for the defence of Britain in 449 and we have the arrival of Hengist and Horsa in Kent. However... Word got back home that this was a country ripe for the plucking. And fleets of Anglo-Saxons followed, looking for conquest and land. For a while they were contained in Kent, but eventually the Saxons broke through and over the next century spread like a rash across the skin of Britain. These Germanic tribes were mainly Angles, Saxons and Jutes, 
as identified by Bede, from northern Germany, at which point I would remind you we don't really know whence the Jutes, because Jutland, the obvious candidate, is a name derived from a Swedish word, Jortar, not cognate with the Jutes. Just saying. So his story is one of genocide, and this gives me the opportunity to read one of the most magnificent pieces of writing in our history by the British monk Gildas, called On the Ruin of Britain, De Exidio et Conquestu Britanniae. These might be described as sermons, really. The earliest time to which they have been dated to as being written by Gildas is to the 470s or 80s, but normally they are dated to later, somewhere between 500 and 545. This is a piece that needs to be read not as a piece of history, though, but as how it was intended as a terrible, apocalyptic peon of rage and fury that the sins of Britons had called down on their heads the fury of the god in the form of pagan invaders. Here we go, then. Pin back your ears. Enjoy the rage. For as the just judge ordained, these heathen conquerors devastated the surrounding cities and countryside, extended the conflagration from eastern to the western shores without opposition, and established a stranglehold over nearly all the doomed island. Public and private buildings were razed. Priests were slain at the altar. Bishops and people alike, regardless of rank, were destroyed with fire and sword, and none remained to bury those who'd suffered a cruel death. A few wretched survivors, captured in the hills, were butchered wholesales, and others, desperate with hunger, came out and surrendered to the enemy for food, although they were doomed to a lifelong slavery, even if they escaped instant massacre. Some fled overseas in their misery, others, clinging to their homeland, eked out a wretched and fearful existence among the mountains, forests and crags, ever on the alert for danger. I hope you all found that suitably cathartic, and I hope it helped Gildas feel a little less bilious after his presumably rather heavy lunch. The Germanic culture of the new arrivals was pagan by religion and the society participatory, a theme we should pick up on the, with the tradition of folk moots and participation in the delivery of law and order. But just like the Celtic culture of the Iron Age, it was also a culture of kinship, of the warrior and of lordship. It was one where the way of the warrior was exalted in an exultant way, exultantly. Killing was cool. Devotion and loyalty to the Lord was all, and the responsibility in return of the Lord was to reward his followers. Here let us use a quote from Beowulf to paint a picture. Schooled Skyathing often deprived his enemies, many tribes of men, of their mead benches. He terrified his foes, yet he as a boy had been found as a waif. Fate made amends for that. He prospered under heaven, won praise and honour until the men of every neighbouring tribe across the Wales Way were obliged to obey him and pay him tribute. So the traditional story is set against the background of a Romano-Britain which has been devastated by the end of Roman administration, a story of catastrophic collapse, towns utterly deserted, folks fled to the countryside and hill forts, economy collapsed, use of coins disappeared. Devastation so great that a population of maybe four million fell to something like one and a half. And trees recolonised the land, which was therefore seriously underexploited, of course. The new invaders would then transform this land by clearing the forests again and implementing their new agricultural methods. Militarily, the Romano-British society was one where military and civil life had been separated, 
So this is also a story of military superiority of the invader, hence the failure of the Romano-British to keep the Saxons in Kent. The Germanic tribes, therefore, drove out and replaced the British, a complete replacement of the existing Romano-British people. This theory is now heavily criticised, and in the tone of revisionism, sometimes in none-too-friendly language, with an undertone of, good lord, what a bunch of idiots, how could they be so stupid? In fact, there are many things to commend the theory. They explain the few texts we had, and most especially the Venomous Bede, writing in the 8th century, whose very competent and clear work builds on Gildas's theme and imposed a reasonably coherent chronology. And he's a scholar of some renown. Then there was the matter of place names and of language, where the British place names are almost entirely removed. Oh, and the arrival of paganism and the apparent disappearance of a religion and religious structure which had been thriving, according to Germanus, when he visited in 429. Archaeology also seemed to partly confirm this, or was used to confirm it, with new styles of brooches and ornamentation found in graves, which seemed to share styles with the culture of northwestern Europe, and so was styled Anglo-Saxon. There was the undoubted desertion of the towns, and manufactured pottery seemed to disappear too, to be replaced by handmade pottery. And if you have had small children, and they have brought any pottery home from school, well, you have an idea of just what that does for the quality of artwork in the home. Imagine that on a national scale. Also, the idea that Germanic auxiliaries were brought into lowland England to help fight off invaders is very believable and entirely consistent with the experience and response from around the empire. Although a military tradition would have survived in the highlands, lowland society had become thoroughly civilian. All around the empire, the response was the same. Let's hire some expert consultants in here to do a business-critical job. However, a whole load of mud has been thrown at the wall of this traditional story, and much of it has stuck. Let us start with the end of Roman Britain, and we can build from there. The unreliability of Gildas's text has received a lot of attention, or at least subject to reinterpretation. It's noted that Gildas never wrote with any intention of creating a text of history, and contains no clear chronology. Furthermore, Underlying the chaos are some assumptions. It refers throughout to a fully operating Roman system of justice with judges, courts and jails. He often refers to the action of the Saxons in ways which are simply standard procedure of Roman auxiliary cohorts and therefore could he be describing unruly behaviour by Roman auxiliary troops under a Romano-British general in eastern England. Gildas describes the main authors of the chaos not as the Saxons, actually, who are rather bit-part players, but on those Picty and Scotty. He describes military command structures based on Roman lines. So, rereading Gildas suggests we could be looking at a civil war among a number of Romano-British kingdoms rather than mass invasion. Even the Venerable Bede comes in for a bit of stick. One historian called Sims Williams concluded that Bede's chronology was simply an attempt to impose order on Gildas rather than being based on any separate or more authoritative knowledge and therefore it has no intrinsic value at all. Imagine saying that to Bede, your chronology has no intrinsic value. He'd hit you hard with a long anecdote about sparrows and the meaning of corporeal life. His biases are pointing out too. He was writing with the objective to discredit Romano-British Celtic Christianity in favour of the orthodoxy of Roman rites as adopted at the Synod of Whitley in 664. So, 
treat with caution all those stories about those conversions? Was he simply branding Celtic Christianity practice as pagan? Then Oliver Rackham took the return to the wilderness and forest thing and dispatched it very firmly and efficiently to the boundary, sending it rattling briskly into the boards to a ripple of polite historical applause and the chink of celebratory teacups. The lime and hazel wildwoods of lowland England and the oak and hazel wildwoods of highland England have been tamed by 2000 BC. Over that period, the great forests were cleared and converted for agriculture. By the time Roman Britain came to an end, England was a patchwork of villas and farmland. That doesn't mean there was no woodland, but there may have been no more than was in existence at the end of the First World War. Better than today, after all the massive grubbing up of ancient woodlands after the Second World War. Crucially, there's very little sign of this changing outside of a few specific areas, such as the Weald of Sussex around the time of the Saxons. This is despite the fact that, according to Rackham, woods can thoroughly reclaim agricultural land in a short period of time, less than 30 years, which is interesting. So the Anglo-Saxons would make changes, and some of them we'll talk about later, but essentially they inherited a landscape which was well-settled, organised and productive, not wildwood to be cleared. There are, incidentally, some survivals of really ancient trees. This is definitely a digression, by the way. Apparently, according to Rackham, England, despite the horrors of the 1950s, still has Europe's greatest collection of ancient oaks. But they're not old enough to go back as far as the Roman world, even if pollarded and managed. Yew trees, of course, those are the thing. They go way back. I think there is a national register of them you'll be delighted to hear. To start off my local history focus, there's a lovely chapel at Reichert near Tame in South Oxfordshire. Elizabeth I went to church there while she was still held in captivity by her big sis. The yew tree outside was planted apparently formally in 1135, that's what people say. Although the bloke from ancientyew.org, because there is of course an organisation called ancientyew.org, he claimed it was way earlier, 9th century he thought. It's a remarkable thought that when you lay your hands on the bowl of such a beast, 9th century, Bayek, the things it's seen. Anyway, away from the digression, back to the story. So, the story of economic collapse also seems to have been rather sexed up too. The death of urban life indicates substantial change and dislocation right enough. But look, since the majority of economic activity and life went on in the countryside, maybe that's not as disastrous as it might have been thought. Many more coins used in the period have now been discovered, so it's clear silver and low-value bronze coins continue to circulate in the economy, though it has to be said in reasonably short supply. It's also been shown that wheel-thrown pottery from specialist centres, that continued to some degree. So look, not exactly a clean bend of health, but a modification from collapse to dislocation and change. Population estimates have been increased also to around 3 million. So maybe a fall from 4 million, quite serious, but again, the word catastrophic is thereby removed from the lexicon of the period. Those brooches and ornaments have been thoroughly examined under the microscope as well, and rather than a distinctive and completely new style, an opposing view now is that they could simply reflect a realignment of culture away from the Mediterranean towards the North Sea. And so, surviving Romano-British styles combined with North German and Scandinavian styles rather than being replaced. 
Archaeologists have pointed out the lack of physical evidence of widespread violence. There are no reams of charred British settlements, for example. Plus, they pointed to DNA evidence. That suggests the survival of the existing population. Chronology is very difficult to apply to DNA evidence. So although there is an increase in northwestern European DNA, confirming this happened between 400 and 700 rather than much later is deeply problematic. The indisputable fact to hold on to, though, is that the vast majority of DNA derives from the ancient settlers of Britain, not the new arrivals. So all of this together all emphasises much more continuity rather than change. A good example of this are the outlines of British civil administrative regions, the regio or civitas, and they often remained unchanged, as I think I might have mentioned somewhere in the Rendlesham episode. So it seems that the shears of the new settlers were part of the old regio or civitas of the Romans. This is an idea that has form, because... It seems that many of those regions were not only pre-Saxon but pre-Roman Iron Age. The Romans, look, they were a pragmatic bunch and they realised that it was a darn sight easier to take over a going concern than indulge in all the hurly-burly of making up your own boundaries and enforcing them on surly populations. So, many of these boundaries survived because they reflect the local landscape, a river, hill, valley and so on. That in itself was all also suggestive of local survival of Romano-British rather than the Holocaust when the Saxons start tipping up because they're still around to point these boundaries out. So where does that leave us? No doubt the 5th, 6th centuries were indeed marked by much violence and they were certainly accompanied by a change in cultural identity but the story is no longer one of wholesale slaughter and that seems reasonably agreed actually. The idea of a mass genocide lies in the dustbin of history Although, you know, it's a fluid area and everyone makes the call for more research. So who knows when some ambitious PhD student will pluck it out again. But the lack of much archaeological evidence of sustained and widespread violence sort of sinks it. And then there's that fundamental question. How many Anglo-Saxon invaders would it take to complete the genocide of a state of three million people? Could it really have been done at that time? So, replacement theories have come along, three of them as far as I can see in brief. One of them is that what we are seeing is a process of acculturalization rather than widespread conquest. The story has parallels with the 9th century disappearance of the Picts in Scotland, which is an amazing story you can hear on the history of Scotland, by the way. Whereas it was once now thought that the Gales of the West invaded and wiped out the Picts in a kind of genocide type thing, or conquest thing at least, it's now thought that under the pressure of the Norse invasions and leadership of Gaelic kings to resist them, together with the Picts, a new identity was formed, which the Picts adopted, willingly or unwillingly. The story in England, then, is of groups of migrants coming in to settle during the 5th and 6th centuries in increasing numbers. It might be pointed out here that Bede's categorisation of three groups of invaders has been expanded, there's good evidence of Franks coming over from France. There's also evidence of Frisians, folks from what is now the northern Low Countries. This is the time for me to roll out the story my Yorkshire grandfather would quote constantly about a proper Dales man or woman being able to understand a Dutch person. That is a Crowther family anecdote for you, right there. All these incomers might establish entirely separate settlements within a region. 
There is marriage and interchange between groups of Germanic and British people, largely peaceful, living side by side as time goes by. Not only do the two become indistinguishable, but they also begin to invent their own foundation myths. Ethnogenesis, to use a handily long and impressive sounding word, consciously creating a new tradition in history, all about the invasions and creation of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Okay, theory two then is a variation of a culturalization. This is the elite replacement theory, a situation very similar to the Norman conquest. So, over time then, due to numbers maybe, or some local violence and thuggery with small bands of Anglo-Saxons following their warlord, formerly British settlements get taken over. And the locals try to fit in with the new realities and styles of the bosses. A bit like that daft theory that comes from some consultant to the CEO, which everyone then has to go along with, whatever the level of stupidity might be. The cultural fusion again takes place, though rather more at the point of the sword in this theory. And over time, Britons cease to look like Britons when archaeologists dig them up because they've adopted Anglo-Saxon customs and dress and burial habits. Estimates of the actual numbers of invaders, which is a very interesting number, are rather difficult, but a mid-range seems to be about 250,000 in a population of maybe 3 million. Very hard, of course, because of what I've just said, that it's not always possible to know the difference between Britain and Saxon from archaeology. OK, final theory then. Susan Oosthausen goes even further in asking whether there are significant numbers of incomers at all, She's produced a really interesting book, nice and short as well as invigorating, which is on the bibliography. She articulates issues with all the above theories, essentially, and posits that the inhabitants simply change the way they look rather than being taken over by invaders. She points out the weakness of the elite replacement theory, that actually we can't confidently find a definitive difference between late Romano-British and Germanic culture, only an evolution. So... How do we know who's replacing whom, or is any replacement happening at all? It's notable that kings from the 5th to the 8th centuries continue to emphasise their position as heirs of Rome. That suggests maybe they reach back to a Romano-British past rather than a foreign Germanic one. And actually, you might remember that some of the earliest individuals, such as Cherdich and Coonrich in the story of Wessex, famously had British names. She points to the survival of ancient land structures and units of government, as we've mentioned. So, yet more continuity is her point rather than dislocation. And she also points to the very late survival of the church. There is a rather fascinating artefact from the 8th century called the Repton Stone, which is supposed to be Athelbold, King of Mercia, from 716 to 757. You can see it on the episode page on the website. Oosthausen points out that the horse, saddle and horseman's stance, his full-face portrait, skirt and hairstyle are all based on a Roman imperial tradition. The moustache comes from British and Germanic traditions, his hose, shirt and seax are Germanic. So the Repton Stone suggests a completely fluid solution. Oosthausen proposes a gradual evolution which is rooted in the Romano-British community rather than the invading Saxon one or any invading Saxon one, where long-term, medium-term and short-term changes shape Romano-British into an English one over the 5th and 8th centuries, self-developed English identity. 
Long-term trends might be the evolution of cultural styles on brooches, influenced by both traditional home styles on one part and foreign imports by trade from northwestern Europe. They might be the adoption of new languages. She points out that the use of multiple languages, Latin and Brythonic, survive quite late into Romano-British society. Driven by immigration and trade, her point is that the population is used to being multilingual, and the needs of trade might have encouraged the adoption of Anglo-Saxon. Other long-term factors include the continuity of landholding patterns and agricultural economy. Medium-term influences might be climate change, which encouraged prosperity, or a shift to the North Sea in trading. And then into all of these come short-term shocks, things like the withdrawal of Roman administration, the attacks by Picti, Scotti, the plague of Justinian in the sixth century. It's a flamboyant theory which synthesizes rather nicely many of the components of both continuity of land settlement with a much more manageable and credible level of immigration. But it has its own problems, and they're quite substantial. Why this widespread revival of paganism and the need for Augustine and the reconversion? The ideas that invaders look back to a Roman past is hardly unusual, actually, especially in kings. The imperium held a deep fascination with cultures across Europe, and will continue to do so. And since we're looking at change which occurs over several generations, rather than one dramatic huli. The inhabitants of England in the seventh or eighth centuries, under the acculturalisation theory, would have interbred over several generations, and they were probably descended from multiple ancestors of multiple ethnic groups. Anyway, artifacts like the Repton Stone may simply reflect that. Critically, there seems insufficient reason in the theory for such a dramatic change to Old English from Latin and Brythonic. An example given by her of how the previous inhabitants might have inquired English, she gives, is from the modern Netherlands, where 70% speak good English. But a modern state with an advanced education system is hardly a good point of comparison for fifth-century Britain. So, after all of that, the dominant theory seems very much one of steady migration. The fundamental change of language and religion is surely inexplicable without a reasonably large influx of people. Who, in a way, acquire a level of supremacy, which therefore enforces a cultural change, making it important for the locals to fit in with the new bosses. And in such a process, it would also be remarkable for there to have been no violence involved at all. Much of that violence was in probability not necessarily the type or scale that left a much record in terms of genocide, but violence or enforcement must have been part of it. I'm quite prepared to accept that it might have been specific and local, therefore, rather than a general burning of the country and genocide, for which there is no archaeological evidence. The idea, for me, is one of limited invasions, with the incomers acquiring local supremacies, which drove the adoption of Old English and paganism, and a new combined culture melding both British and Germanic traditions, which seems to have a best fit to me. May I also add a snippet to this, as Ellen of this parish alerted me from Mark Morris's book. The Anglo-Saxons, because there are a few other points that should stiffen the sinews of this argument. It could be argued that, despite survivals of people and some ancient administrative structures, the completeness of the takeover of the English language suggests that the indigenous culture was not strong enough to fight off, absorb, or assimilate these migrants. So Morris makes the point that in modern French, 
The words for the days of the week derive from Roman traditions, from the society that preceded it. In England, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday are taken from Germanic gods. In addition, the 6th century, still in the migration period, saw a series of massive catastrophes that would have made a takeover much easier or at least weakened the indigenous population. So, in 536, 540 and 547, there are... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Vast volcanic eruptions in Iceland which cause havoc with the weather. The decade would be the coldest for 2,000 years. Crops failed, famines stalked the land and many sites with high-status artefacts were suddenly abandoned, free for any new arrivals. On the heels of this catastrophe, just like in the 1350s, came the equivalent of the Black Death, or the Plague of Justinian as it was. Although there is no certain evidence that it reached Britain, it did reach Ireland, where the trouble kept coming until the 570s, and it would have been extraordinary had it not swept across England too. The point of all of this is that while we may have overemphasised the extent and speed of the collapse of Roman Britain, the 5th and 6th centuries had a lot going for them if you were looking to affect a takeover over a weakened indigenous population. But I'm merely a podcaster, not a professor at one of the world's leading universities, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. But it is the assumption, I have to tell you, on which the rest of this mini-series is based, and it does seem to be the central dominant theory. That's it, then. Next time, I would like to get specific, if you don't mind, and we can start talking about these new settlements, and I'll use South Oxfordshire as a bit of an example. We'll talk about how new identities and regions begin to emerge. Until then, you might like to go on to the homepage on the website for the Anglo-Saxon series and have a look at that PDF and download it. There are some maps there. Until then, welcome back to Anglo-Saxon England. Good luck, everyone, and have a great fortnight. <laughs> <laughs>